when Kelly and I first decided to come out here, we ran into all sorts of, of problems. Um, we had problems that really kind of started all at one time. It wasn't just a, a gradual thing. They happened all at once. About a month or so before, well, not a month or so, it was just a few weeks before we were set to come out here. Uh, it was on a Friday night. Kevin and Diane and their kids had come down. And me and Dad had gone to a revival in Roland, Oklahoma, which is on the kind of on the Arkansas-Oklahoma border. And while we were at the revival, Sarah began to projectile vomit and would not stop. And my brother and sister-in-law, they took all the kids, except they took you know Caitlin and Jacob and Kayla and Kelly and Diane and Kevin. <clears throat> they took a flying trip to Tulsa to take Sarah to the ER. They tried to call us, but my cell service didn't exist in Roland, Oklahoma at that time. And Dad's service, Dad had his phone turned off, so we didn't get the message after the church was out. Then we came out and we went to Tulsa. And we found out that we got there, Sarah had the rotavirus, I think is what they called it at the time. And she was there Friday night, Saturday night, and most of the day on Sunday before she got dismissed. And boy, she was a, a sick little girl uh, during that time before she got to come home. Early Sunday afternoon, while we were waiting for Sarah to be discharged, Kelly and I, we got into a an argument. Like a, I'm not talking like, oh, don't do that kind of argument. I mean, this is the kind where you see on cops where the police come out there and the dude's out there in a wife beater shirt holler at the police to shut up and go away. It was just kind of that kind of a fight. It was all Kelly's fault. Uh, but we had to, to deal with that. Then we got home that evening. Uh, and when we got home, we found that my dad and Kelly's dad were out in the backyard digging up the sewer line because it had ruptured back there and was in need of being replaced. Now, this was all just over a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Then just when it was time to come out here, uh, we had a problem finding a U-Haul. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you reserve a U-Haul, that doesn't guarantee that there's going to be one in your town. What that does is that guarantees that you have a U-Haul reserved somewhere within the company. Right? That's all that it guarantees. So we were struggling to find one in Muskogee to begin with, so we did find one eventually. We got it up there, and we, we had a tiny little house, and we didn't have that much stuff. And we loaded that U-Haul up from front to, to end, and then we had a whole house full of stuff that was left. And we started calling around, and there was not a U-Haul truck available in Muskogee or Tahlequah or Wagner or in any of the surrounding towns that we could find. And, and this was like... It was probably like 8 o'clock at night when we were hitting this. We're planning on leaving a day or two. I mean, we're, we're leaving real soon, and we don't have the U-Haul, and there's not one that we can find. So Kelly and I, we kind of stressed out and felt sat down in the house and kind of cried. And after a few moments, Kelly said, you really think we're supposed to, to go to Guyman? I said, well, I do. And she said, well, I do too, but boy, this is, this is stressful. Uh, and, and we had peace that we were doing what God wanted us to do, but... We still had all of these problems going, all of this stuff that was overwhelming to us at the time. And in this, we really we learned an invaluable lesson. And the lesson was that you'll always face opposition when you're determined to do the work of God. I mean, that's just the reality of the way it works. Right? When you set out to do what God would have you to do, there's going to be opposition that you're going to face to try to keep you from doing God's will. Now, the exiles that we've been discussing and looking, about, looking at in the book of Ezra, they learned this lesson as they seek to rebuild the temple. So let's look at that tonight, see what we can learn from them. Open your Bible to Ezra 4. That's page 364 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm just going to stand on the reading of God's Word. And we're going to overall cover the whole chapter tonight, but I think we're only going to read the first seven verses uh, tonight. But we'll end up covering the whole chapter. So now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God in, of Israel. They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Ershadon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses said to them, you may do nothing with us to build the house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in the building, and they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In the beginning of Ahasuerus, the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah in Jerusalem <clears throat> in the days of Artaxerxes also, Bishlam, Mithridath, 
Tabal and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. The title of the message tonight is Opposition to the Work of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for the opportunity that we have tonight to gather, to study your word, to learn more about you. Father, we are a people that want to do your will. We want to be involved in the work that you've got going on in Gaiman and in our lives. So, Father, we know that there's going to be opposition that we're going to have to face. Let us learn tonight uh, from these examples here what we can do so that we can be prepared, so that we can stand against it, and we would not be knocked down and defeated. God, help us. Lord, to trust your word, help us to be filled with your spirit, help us to take this, apply it to our lives, that we could be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, and we could stand against all the wiles of the enemy. Have your way in our hearts and lives, fill me with your spirit, give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that I could do your words, speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as the people of God set out to the work of God, they run into opposition almost immediately. And when the opposition arose, they did not give up. Right? They stood against the work, uh, and they kept standing against it. But the people of God also stood against the opposition. As I was studying this passage, there were two, two parts that really stood out to me. Right? The first is, in verses 2 and 3, it says that, that these adversaries, that we know from verse 1, they were adversaries, they came to Zerubbabel and they said, Hey, let us build with you. Right? They came as friends. Right? They didn't come as adversaries. Hey, we're here to thwart the work of God in your midst. We're here to undermine what you're trying to do for God. They came. We worship the same God as you do. Let us, let us join with you. Right? So they came as friends when in reality they were not friends. Now, Zerubbabel and the leaders of the house, they, they recognized that these people were not their friends and they rejected them. They said, no, you will not join us in any way. In helping build the temple of God. Right? So there's a level of discernment that they had to recognize that these people that came as friends were really adversaries. Right now, if you look at verse 5 through 7, uh, it says that they began to work, right? And they worked, they hired counselors to frustrate their purposes, and they did it all the days of King Cyrus, all the days of Darius of Persia, into the reign of Ahasuerus, and even in the beginning of King Artaxerxes. Now, I couldn't find anything that told me exactly how long all of this was, like how, many, how much time exactly had passed. But I think it's safe to say, from what we know, that we're talking years and not days. Right? The opposition that they faced, it wasn't that these guys came to them and said, hey, we want to build with you. We're your friends. And they said, no, you're not. And they said, oh, okay, shucks. And they were through with it. Right? It was that they came back and they found different ways. And they found different ways. And they did it over and over and over again for years and years and years. They opposed the work of God. So the lesson to learn here is that standing against the opposition takes discernment and perseverance. Right? It takes discernment and perseverance. Because the enemy doesn't always come looking like the enemy. Right? Sometimes the enemy comes looking and acting like a friend, but it's really an enemy. And it takes discernment to recognize, is this the opposition to God's work in my life as I'm trying to join with him? And it takes perseverance. We have to stand against it and keep standing against it over and over and over again. And we're going to talk more about that. In this passage, it gives us three lessons about standing in opposite, standing against the opposition in discernment and perseverance. Right? The first is that there will be opposition. That's just kind of a, a plain throw out there. This is the reality of life statement. There will be opposition. Right? It says in verse 1 that the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard and then they came. So right away we're introduced to the bad guys who are coming not to help. Right? They are not coming to help. Keep that in mind. They are coming to oppose <clears throat> the work of God. And this is a guaranteed way uh, the world works. If you determine to do the work of God, you determine to join God on His mission, the enemy will come against you always. And it will be the opposition. Will uh, There will always be opposition to the work of God. And when we determine to do the work of God, we're going to face this opposition as well. And that's just a truth we have to know. Jesus often spoke in real honesty about how hard it would be to follow Him. Right? This verse, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you have peace. But notice the rest. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. 
I have overcome the world. Right? Follow me. Here's the reality. You're going to have tribulation all the days that go on in this earth. This reality was lived out in the Apostle Paul. For a great and effective door has been opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Right? So Paul, I like this verse because there is a great and effective door open for him. Right now, who, according to scripture, opens doors that make ministry effective? Well, God does. Right? It was God. Paul didn't just get there and just decide, hey, this is a great opportunity. This was a God thing. God had put him there. God had opened up the opportunities. And even though God had put him there and opened up the opportunities and made it effective, the enemy then had risen up to stop what God was trying to do in and through the Apostle Paul. We see that same sort of thing in this passage. But it was God who stirred up King Cyrus to send the people back to rebuild the temple. It was God who stirred up the people to go back and rebuild the temple. It was God who stirred up people who didn't go back to give them money and stuff so they could afford to go back and rebuild the temple. God is actively at work. This isn't just Zerubbabel and others thinking this would be a cool thing to do for God. This is definitely a God thing. God is there. God is at work. It's all God's plan. And yet, in the midst of God's plan, and them joining with God, there are troubles. There are, there is opposition. And we need this truth about opposition, facing opposition, to be repeated to us often so that we can be prepared for the opposition to come as we determine to do the work of God. Right? So often we kind of have an idea that if we're setting out to do God's work and if it's really of God and God's in it, it's going to be really easy. Right? The, the cliche saying that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And the, the saying, the idea along with that is that if you're in the center of God's will, there's just going to be peace and safety and no conflict and no problems. And that's not even remotely true. I mean, that is not even remotely what we see in the Bible. Now, in the center of Jesus' will, there is what? There is peace, there is good cheer, and there is tribulation. All of those things exist at once in the very center of God's will. Doing God's will... It will always put us squarely in the crosshairs of the enemy. Jesus was brutally honest with us about this. Paul was brutally honest with us about this. Scripture is just brutally honest with us about the way that this works. The reason is so that we will not be caught unaware when the opposition occurs. That when it happens, we won't go, what on earth is this? Instead, we'll say, oh... This is just what the Bible said would happen. This is just what Jesus said would happen. I know what this is, and I know how to fight with it now. Kelly and I were caught pretty much unaware. I mean, we knew next to nothing about spiritual warfare and the reality of opposition to the work of God. We were basically blindsided by all that had happened to us uh, in trying to get ready to come out here. But we wouldn't have been if we had just known the truth of what Scripture teaches so are you trying to work with God by saving the lost, by restoring the prodigal, by healing broken hearts, restoring ruptured relationships, or anything else that God would have you to do? Then be aware and be prepared because you're putting yourself in a position to face opposition. The enemy will oppose you as you seek to do the will of God always. Be ready for it. Prepare, prepare yourself to stand against it with discernment and perseverance. Right. So there will be opposition. But secondly... Opposition comes in many forms. But in this chapter, we see the opposition to God's work take many forms. And the many forms it took in Ezra's day are not unlike the forms it will take in our day. Right? And it gives us several in this passage. The first is compromise. Right? In verse 2, the compromise was to let these pagans join in with them in building the temple. Right? They want to join with them. They claim to be worshipers of God. Now, Zerubbabel shuts them down, pushes them out, does not allow them to take part. The reason is because these people are not actually worshipers of God. Right? Because notice what even they say. They're, they're not Israelites. Right? They were moved there and had been there since the days of a king of Assyria who brought them there. Right? So here's what they are. And the Bible tells us a story about this. That when the nation of Israel, not, not Judah, right, not Judah and Benjamin and Jerusalem, not when it was destroyed, but when the ten tribes 
when they were destroyed and taken away, king of Assyria brought in other people, people from other lands. And what they were are people he had conquered from other places who worshipped other gods. And they were brought into the land and they began to live there. But the Bible says the Lord sent lions among them to kill the people. So some of the Israelite priests had been brought back to teach them the ways of God. Now these people though did not devote themselves to the worship of God. Instead what they did was they incorporated the worship of the God of Israel with the worship of the gods that they brought from their homeland. Right, So what they were, were like they had this mixed religion that was sort of about Yahweh and sort of about Baal or Mershadach or whoever it was that they worshipped in whatever land that they were from. What Zerubbabel knew was these people were not genuine worshippers of God and that sort of a mixture, it would never be acceptable to God. God was not going to allow that. That, that wasn't the pure worship of the holy God of Israel would never be accepted by him. And so the discernment of Zerubbabel and the other leaders, it saved them from compromise. It saved them from compromise. Now one sure way the enemy will oppose us will be in the form of compromise. If there is one thing the enemy of our soul wants us to do, it is to compromise. Now the compromise that he wants us to do it actually, kind of like opposition, it comes in many forms all on its own. right? There is kind of a, what you'd call a religious compromise, which is what you see here. right? That's what's going on. Mixture of religions. Worship of God plus the worship of something else. So for us, imagine if we're trying to build a new building. And the Kingdom Hall or the Mormons come in and they offer to help us with money and with manpower so long as we both worship together. Would that be okay? Even if they said, you worship on Sundays and we'll do it on Saturdays, but it's all going to be this one big church that we all are working together on, would that be okay? No. No, absolutely it would not be okay. But working together with these sort of pseudo-Christian groups is strictly forbidden in Scripture. And I don't know if that's really small. Get along there, but here's what it says. It's 2 Corinthians 6, 14-17. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. We absolutely could not work together with pseudo-Christian groups or people of other religions for any sort of religious type purpose. Right? We couldn't gather with an interfaith service with us and the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness and the Muslims all gathering together to sing praise to God. That would not be acceptable to God. That would be an act of compromise on our part. Now, of course, we want to be sure to understand there's a difference between interfaith and interchurch, right? We can gather with the Nazarenes, the First Baptist and the Methodists because they're Christians. And that's fine. That's not compromise. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about different denominations that are all part of Jesus. He's talking about these groups that are not Jesus, that are not a part of Christ, and yet maybe pretend to be. We absolutely could not have anything to do with them as far as working together with them. That would be compromise. Another kind of compromise would be moral compromise. When Billy Graham determined to go into full-time evangelistic ministry, he, he and a couple of others who were starting the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, they studied evangelists of days gone by. And he wanted to learn what they had done right so they could emulate it, and what they had done wrong so they could learn to avoid it. And they discovered that there were three issues, all a form of compromise, that had destroyed evangelists. Right? Two of the three involved moral compromise. One was regarding moral or sexual purity. The other involved money, right? Sexual immorality and some sort of financial scandal have destroyed more ministries than virtually anything else in the history of the world. 
Now, realistically, we know that it's not just Christian ministers that are brought down by moral compromise or by some sort of money scandal. Right? Regular Christians are brought down by moral compromise all the time. Right? Moral compromise doesn't even have to be in the form of sex or money. Right? Moral compromise is simply taking the temptation, giving in the temptation of not denying yourself, of not taking up your cross, and not walking the straight and narrow path with Jesus that He has laid out for us. Right? Anytime we sacrifice our integrity, anytime we sacrifice biblical morality, anytime we take the easy path the world says to take instead of the hard path that God has said to take, we have compromised morally. And that is what the enemy wants us to do. Right? A third kind would be doctrinal compromise. And this is the third compromise that Billy Graham discovered that destroyed evangelists. Many evangelists over time, Billy Graham said... Uh, because of their growing popularity, they began to compromise certain biblical doctrines in order to gain or to maintain popularity. Right? And that's a very real temptation in our day. As certain truths of Scripture are becoming less and less popular. Less and less, not just popular, but unacceptable. Right? Primarily, the two in our day that are the biggest ones are the uniqueness of Christ and sexual ethics. I mean, is Jesus the only way to heaven? According to Jesus and the apostles and all of Scripture, yes, He absolutely is. And not just the name of Jesus and applied in some random way that makes me feel good. But specifically, the Jesus of the Bible, who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and rose from the dead, literally, actually rose from the dead. But only those who repent of their sins and believe in that Jesus will call heaven their home. Now, that's not a very popular idea in our age of inclusivism and tolerance because it excludes everyone but Christians, it excludes all other religions, it excludes irreligious people who are moral. But not religious. It excludes people who are spiritual. But not religious. It excludes the good moral person. It excludes people of other cultures. Who were raised in their culture to worship another God. It excludes everyone. Except for those who repent of their sins. And believe in Jesus Christ. Well that's really unpopular. It's really not a liked doctrine. In our day. And there is always a temptation to compromise that for the sake of acceptance, for popularity, for people to embrace us. The other one is in regard to sexual ethics. Is sex a gift from God reserved for a man and a woman in the context of a marriage covenant? Yeah. According to Jesus, the apostles, and all of Scripture, absolutely that's what sex is. But again, that's not a very popular teaching in our day of inclusivism and tolerance because it excludes homosexuality, hookups, pornography, sex before marriage, and living together without being married. Right? It excludes all of those things. Only people, living, man and a woman, living together in a covenant relationship. It's the only time it's not sinful. Well, that excludes, like, the world. And so that is very unpopular. And there is very much a very real temptation Compromise that for the sake of acceptance. Both of these doctrinal truths are extremely unpopular. So the temptation is to alter them a bit. right? To, to just make them seem a little less exclusive. A little less harsh. A little more tolerant. A little, more, a little easier to swallow by the irreligious crowd. But the reality is, once we alter these doctrines to make them more palatable to unbelievers... It's compromise. It is doctrinal compromise. We have deviated from the kingdom of God from following Jesus to doing other things. It's just what it is. There is, so, first there's compromise. Then there's discouragement. Look at verse 4. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. Now we're not told much, uh, anything really at this point, about the ways that they tried to discourage them, just that they did. But we all know discouragement is a powerful weapon in the hands of the enemy. Many who will not compromise will quit in discouragement. Statistically, about 250 pastors leave the ministry every month. That's about 3,000 a year. Some leave because of retirement, which is a natural thing. 
Some lead because of moral or doctrinal compromise, and that's the way it should be. But many leave because of discouragement. Ministry's hard, and it leads them to the point that they'd rather drive a bread truck than pastor a church. Discouragement causes them to quit. They wouldn't compromise. They've never stolen, embezzled, done any of those things. But they give up on doing the things that God wants them to do. Now, with the other things I've mentioned, it's not just pastors who quit the work of God in discouragement. How many churches are filled with people who used to be active, serving members of the church, but now are attenders at best? As, as with pastors, the reason vary. Some of this is likely due to age and infirmity. Some of this is likely due to doctrinal moral compromise. The reality is much of it is due to discouragement. Things are not going the way that they thought. Things are harder than they intended for them to be, that they imagined that they would be, and they give up. Their opposite, the opposition they face in their service to Jesus discourages them, and they give up. That is a very real discouragement. It's a very real method of opposition that the enemy would use to keep us from doing the work of God. Uh, another one is trouble. Right again, we're not told the specifics. If they tried to, they troubled them in building. But my guess from what it means to be troubled is this just they generally made it difficult to do the work. The goal of troubling someone as they try to work with God is just to frustrate them to the point that they, they give up. Again, the whole point of it all is to give up. Keeping that in mind. Why does the enemy want us to compromise so that we're not doing the work of God? Why does the enemy want to discourage us so that we're not doing the work of God? Why does the enemy trouble us so that we're not doing the work of God? All of that is the goal. Um, and it's just to frustrate them to the point that they give up. This kind of opposition is seen in many ways when churches try to do the work of God. Now this one is something that I, the most troubling of all of the, all of the opposition we face. This one was the most troubling to me because of the way I understood it. Because the reality is sometimes the troubling from the enemy comes actually from within the church. Now I know that sounds wrong. That surely couldn't be. And yet when Paul warned the Ephesian elders... In Acts chapter 20, what did he tell them? He said, and I know that some men will arise from you, from your group, and will lead people astray. So here he's talking, not to just church members, but these are church elders, leaders. And he said, some of you men standing here with me today, you were saved under my ministry. You were discipled by me. You, I have appointed you and left you in charge of that church. But someday, some of you, you're going to rise up within the church. You're going to cause dissensions. You're going to lead people astray. You're going to trouble the church. The sad reality is that in many cases, the greatest troublers of the work of God come from within the church. I can think of a lot of examples. One church I know of was all the time I knew of the church. I had preached there once, never been really a part of the church other than that. It was a small church. I mean, it was a church. It was in a good location, but it was small. It was kind of 15, 20 people at its, in its glory days. When I preached there, it was less than that. But something happened and more people began to come. And they were excited. And they were beginning to serve. And they were beginning to, to go around the community. And knock on doors and invite people to church. And they were planning events for the youth. And they were inviting the youth from the neighbors, the neighborhood to come. And they were looking. And there was a bar right next door to the church that had gone out of business. And they were looking to see could we buy that and turn it into a youth building. And, and have right there on the edge of this main street in our town this testimony of what the church is doing. So in one meeting they were there and the church had... I mean, if it had tripled, it had gone from 15, 20 people to close to 100. And in this meeting, they're determining some things to do. And then a guy stood up and he was, as they found out, the spokesman for others within the church. And he referred to the others as the originals. They were the people that were there before you other people showed up. We've been here for years. We were here long before you people came in. And we feel like we're being pushed out. We're not going to join with anything you do. We're going to oppose it. We're going to vote against it. We'll not give to this church as long as you people are doing these things anymore. Now, that guy's a deacon in the church. And that's not a shot against deacons. That guy just was a deacon in the church. I know who he is. 
a longtime member. And yet there he was. He troubled the church. Guess what happened? Pastor resigned that night. The church split. Every person that was a new person there left and went to other churches. The church is now back down to 15 or 20 people. In the three or four years since that's happened, they've had like six pastors. They're just as happy as pigs in mud because that's what they want to be. They don't want a long-term pastor. They don't want to reach their community. They just want someone to come in and preach to them and let them know they're going to heaven and they're good to go. And if anything else happens, they're going to trouble it and they're going to cause problems. Trouble in the church. Lots of other examples. I could tell you the example of a friend of mine who was trying to start a pantry, kind of like what we have here at the church, just for people to come in. And there was a guy there that opposed anything that came up like that. And he said he stood up. And I mean, he, he wasn't even like want to spend church money. He's kind of like what we do. Hey, we have a need for a church pantry. If anybody wants to bring food, bring it and drop it off, we'll, we'll have it. I mean, it was just that. This guy stood up and spoke out against it. And he spoke out against it over and over and over and over again. Until eventually, several of the leaders in the church came to my friend. And they said, you know, we agree with what you're saying, what you ought to do. But this guy here, he is a longtime member in the church. And we just sure hate to make him mad. I think it would be better if we don't. We just don't want to make him mad. We better not do it just so that he'll be okay. Let's just keep peace in the church. Trouble the church. Of course, the church is going to die in the next two years. It's almost guaranteed, but for a lot of reasons. But troublers in the church be given that much influence in the church is, is one of the reasons for it. Lots of examples. We, we've all seen troublers in the church if you've been around for very long. Time won't permit us to talk about more of them. The main idea is that troublers often come from within the church and they make such a fuss that everyone gives in to them because it's just easier. It's easier to give in to the troubler than it is to push back against them and keep doing the work that God would have you to do. So compromise, discouragement, trouble, politics. You see in verse 5 that they hired counselors to frustrate their purposes during all the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Uh, this verse is interesting because the way it's translated. My New King James says they hired counselors. Another way, some of the other translations say that they bribed officials to oppose them. Now, regardless of which translation is best, I think it's probably the same idea in both. They either hired what we might call lawyers to press their case to make them have to stop the work, or they paid off government officials to be against them. And either way, what they did was they used political means to thwart the work of God. That's what they were going for. They were trying to get the officials. Because remember, city officials at that time, they weren't Jewish. Right? They were Babylonian. They were from, they, they, Israel was not allowed to govern their own affairs. So they're going to the pagans around them and going, Hey, this people, and they're trying to do this. And Don't you think you ought to stop that? And if we give you enough money, will you be opposed to them there? And more and more we find politics being used against the work of God. Uh, we see it all over the world. Here's an example from Bulgaria. Bulgaria recently passed a law that hinders all religions except for Islam and Eastern Orthodox Christianity um, because those two are basically native religions. Right? And here's how it hinders them. Right? It, it hinders, if not outright prevents, non-citizens from leading a worship service. Right? Which, that's a problem for a missionary, right? Because thus far, there are no Bulgarian missionaries. Now, we have missionaries, Free Will Baptist missionaries, in Bulgaria. And what this law, once it goes into effect, is going to do is it's going to prevent this guy from leading a worship service. He can't teach. He can't lead in, in any way. That's the goal of what it's going to do. It will also not recognize a religious group in the country if there are not 300 or more Bulgarians that are a part of it. Now, again, think about a missionary. Missionaries go over. Typically, missionaries go over. It's just them and whatever family they bring, and they sort of parachute in, and there they are. So how long does it take before a missionary organization can register 300 members to be accepted as a legitimate religious group by the country? Well, a very, very long time. And according to the way this law is going to work, it is going to make it nearly impossible for that to happen. Now, all of this, it isn't, doesn't, it's, not, it's not worded in the we hate Christians kind of way. Instead, it's worded in the we are Bulgarians, Bulgaria first and all of these foreigners are coming into our country. And they're bringing in their ideas and their thoughts. And they're beginning to transform our culture. And we don't want them to be able to come in here. That's what it's a, 
It's, a, it's, an, it's an opposition against. To curb the influence of people from other countries. Uh, and it's religious primarily, focused on religion. But it's a law that went through their parliament. I believe it goes into effect maybe in January. And it will put our missionaries over there in, in really deep trouble. Now more and more we also find stuff like that being used in America. Right? Zoning laws are being used in new communities to prevent churches from being built. They'll have the law set up to where you can't have a parking lot that's so big or you can't have a building bigger than this. And what that does is that excludes a church from being able to go in there and to build. Uh, other places, they like a story I read either last year or earlier this year, a guy was doing a home Bible study with people. And it wasn't like 100 people coming to his house, but it was maybe 10. And so they were parked around and all over the place. And so they, they find him and they did the zoning laws so that you couldn't have more than you know, two or three cars parked in front of your house at a time. But the purpose was to prevent him from being able to have a Bible study. It wasn't that he was clogging the street. It was just an attempt to do that. It was politics being used to do that. Hate speech laws are also something we should pay very careful attention to. Right? Because if hate speech can be defined as saying that certain things people do or certain ways people feel or certain things people believe is wrong, Right, if we if hate speech can be if I can say me saying people outside of Jesus go to hell, that can be determined as hate speech, then we're in trouble. Right? That's that's kind of where we're going. Uh, that's the point of a lot of hate crime laws, hate speech laws. An example, there's a a church in up in New England. They had a sign. And, and and this sign was not the way I would do it. I would never put up a sign like this, but what they had was the sign said, if you say there's no God, you'd better be right. And then underneath it, they had flames that went up there. Kind of with the old, because hell's awaiting if you're wrong, kind of thing. Which again, I wouldn't put up a sign like that. I don't think that's conducive to reaching your neighbors or helping. But they did. An atheist in the neighborhood was offended by it. But he didn't just go talk to the pastor and say, hey, this is, can you stop? He called the police on the guy. The police investigated. The police didn't do anything, but they did ask the pastor to take it down. And in their logs, it's logged as a hate issue. That, that's, that ought to be scary to us. Right? Because all he did was said, if you say there's no God and you're wrong, kind of hell's your home. Well, that's, that's not the nice way to say it, but it's true. And it was registered as a, not a hate crime, because it wasn't a crime, but as a hate incident is how they registered it there. That'll be troublesome. Laws like that will be against the church before long. Because that's the ultimate goal of the enemy, opposing the work. Many more ways that politics is used to oppose the work of God in and around the world, in America and around the world. And then the last variety that's given here is public opinion. And we aren't going to read it all. But notice in verse 6. The reign of King Ahasuerus, the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Artaxerxes. Then in Bishlam... Mithridath, Tibble, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. And this goes on and on and on uh, up until verse 23 when the king reads it. And it's just this big long list of accusations against them. And in this letter, they accuse the Israelites of many things, but the gist of it seems to be that rebuilding of the temple is subversive. And that if the city is rebuilt, the Israelites are going to rebel against the king. They'll declare their own king. They'll rebel against you. You better put a stop to it so that they don't do this. Uh, now, this is a different king than the one whose heart was stirred. But he certainly knows about what Cyrus had done, about the work that's going on. But what we're going to see in a minute is this letter changes his mind. Right? The letter changes his mind about their work. And at this point in history... The king's opinion it is basically public opinion. Now, once the king's opinion was settled, that was public opinion. And public opinion is really important in a lot of ways. The U.S. Army Special Forces motto, uh, one of their mottos, is to win the hearts and the minds of the people. Right? Because they know, being foreigners that go into another country, no matter what they're doing, they're, they're not going to find friendly people there if they just come in with guns blazing. So they go in and they begin to do things like put on clinics, and they bring in their special forces medics to heal people. They teach the people how to plant crops, how to build houses. Right? Because what they want to do is, they want to make friends. They don't want to come in with their guns and say, be for us, we're better than the other guys. 
They want to come in and say, look at what we're doing. If you join us, we can do more. Right? They know that winning the hearts and the minds of the battle is really half the whole conflict. Our enemy knows this as well. And so he does what he can to influence public opinion against the people of God as they do the work of God. This is done um, as believers are demonized for their beliefs. They're painted as either bigots who are seeking to oppress others or ignorance who are seeking to hinder progress. Believers will be described as people who want to restrict and remove the freedoms of others. Does that sound familiar? The enemy will say that the uh, message of the word and the testimony of Jesus Christ is hate speech. Again, does that sound familiar? He'll make it seem as though all the problems in the world, all the problems that the world's ever had, it's the church, it's the people of God as they try to do the work of God. Again, does, does that sound familiar? Sure. I mean, it ought to if we're paying attention to a lot of what secular news media is saying. This ought to sound really, really kind of familiar. But also, I think a real world example of how this works would be Hitler, right? How did, I mean, how was it possible that Hitler could convince an entire country to imprison people on the basis of their racial heritage and even gas them and incinerate them to the point that the people either cheered or that they turned a blind eye to it, even if they didn't like it. He convinced all of these, all of Nazi Germany, all of our problems. They're taking our jobs. They're subverting our women. They're bringing crime in. All of this doing, they were demonizing his people until very few people blinked an eye when he put them in camps and began to kill them. It's the way the enemy works. That's the way. But it works. Public opinion is dangerous. Very dangerous for two reasons. One, it's, it's powerful, but it's also ignorant. But it's powerful because once public opinion is set, anything goes. So long as it's consistent with public opinion. Right? I mean, if, if public opinion is that I'm less than human, no one's going to bat an eye if someone takes a baseball bat to me. If public opinion is that Christianity is hateful and oppressive and evil, no one will bat an eye as laws are passed to make preaching of the gospel illegal. It's powerful. It's also ignorant. Because once public opinion is set, facts don't matter. Right? I mean, we've seen this, haven't we? I mean, once the public determines this person is guilty of that, all the evidence in the world never changes anyone's mind. Facts don't matter. Right? Once, the, once the, the public opinion is that the church is the problem, the fact that, that hospitals were initially started by the church, that won't matter. The fact that orphanages were started by the church, that won't matter. The fact that mental asylums were originally started by the church, that won't matter. The fact that the greatest generosity in America comes from churches won't matter. The fact... That when there is a, a hurricane or a natural disaster, Christian groups are the first people on the ground bringing in generators and water and food and comfort and shelter will not matter. Facts don't matter when public opinion is against you. And we definitely see public opinion swaying against the church in our day. So if we are trying to work with God by saving the lost, restoring the prodigal, healing broken hearts, storing ruptured relationships or any other way, then we have put ourselves in a position to face opposition that will come in many forms. So we have to stand against it. Be ready to stand against it with discernment, with perseverance. Thirdly, the opposition never gets up, gives up. As I mentioned earlier, the opposition goes on for a very long time. Years, not days. And it says in verse 5, 6, and 7, I read that earlier, so I won't read it again. But this is important. I think if there's one mistake that we as the church of Jesus Christ make regarding opposition. It's that, that while our enemy is playing the long game, we play a short game. And here's what I mean by that. The enemy knows he doesn't have to win every battle to win the war. Right? The enemy knows that losses are, are, are part of it. And so they take a, the enemy takes a loss in stride, regroups, and moves on to the next attack. Meanwhile, within the church, we win a battle and we let, a guard, let our guard down and we celebrate like we've won the whole thing. 
We act like this one victory is the end all be all. We, we have won the whole thing. We're, we are safe forever at this point. And there is no putting the enemy to flight to they never come back again. Not, not now. Not until we get to like Revelation 19. I mean, that's just, as long as we live here, the enemy isn't ever completely defeated. The enemy once defeated simply regroups and plans another attack. We, we even see this in the life of Jesus. I know we're familiar with the temptation of Jesus that he went out to the wilderness where he started his ministry. The devil tempted him. And Jesus wins the battle. But notice what comes after this. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. But the, Jesus didn't walk out of the wilderness that day eternally victorious. The devil never opposed him again. That's not what happened. Rather, the devil went away from there and said, I lost this one. But I wonder what happens if I turn the Pharisees against him. I wonder what happens if I turn Judas, one of his disciples, against him. I wonder what happens if I do this. And he just took every loss in stride until he came back with a different plan in a different way every time. This is the way spiritual battles work. The enemy is always at work opposing the people of God as they do the work of God. Always. And a victory today does not guarantee there's no battle tomorrow. So are you trying to work with God by saving the lost, restoring prodigal, healing broken hearts, restoring ruptured relationships or anything else? And you put yourself in a position to face opposition that comes in many forms. And it's never going to give up. It's never going to stop unless you do. So be ready for it. And be prepared to stand against it with discernment and perseverance. And then finally, the last one. This is the hardest one of all. Sometimes the bad guys win. Doesn't even sound right, does it? And yet, look at what we see in verse 23 and 24. Now, when the copy of the king, when the, co- the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimei, the scribe and their companions, they went with haste to Jerusalem against the Jews, and by force of arms made them cease. And the work of the house of God was at Jerusalem ceased, and it was discontinued to the second year of the reign of Darius. King of Persia. The opposition succeeded in swaying opinion. And so by decree, by force, the work of God stopped. And that's where our chapter ends. It's depressing. It ends with the bad guys winning and the work of God being stopped. We're going to see when we go on that it stops for a while. There's going to be years. I think, of time that passes before the work begins again. And and while that's depressing that sometimes the bad guys win, Scripture and life bear out that that's the reality. I I use this verse a lot. Paul wanted to go to Thessalonica, but Satan hindered him. Think about that. He's the Apostle Paul. He healed people. He cast demons out of people. And when he wanted to go somewhere, Satan prevented him. It doesn't say God stopped him. It doesn't say the Spirit prevented him as it did going to other places. But Satan, the bad guys won. But we see it all throughout life as well. I was thinking some examples, big example. Right? Martin Luther, Protestant Reformation, started in Germany. Right? And so at one time, Germany was like the, the seat of Protestant Christianity. Lutheran churches there were strong, deep convictions. To the point that even in, in World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer dies, gives his life in service to Christ, opposing Hitler and what he's doing. But you get to our day. What is the Lutheran church in Germany like now? Virtually non-existent. Churches or museums or coffee shops or bar halls. A church that exists is weak, anemic, liberal. Completely diverse, different from, from what Luther started. The bad guys won in America, this year, we're, we're coming to the end of the year. By the time we hit January 1st, 2019, 3,000 churches in America will have closed in 2018. It's a lot. Now again, some close due to age and infirmity. Right? Sometimes a church closing is not necessarily a bad thing. But more often than not, the church is closed because the bad guys have won. Marriages and families are destroyed all the time. It's not God's will 
the bad guy wins. And the harsh truth is that sometimes the bad guys win. And what we have to keep in focus is that while the bad guys win battle, they don't win the war. In the end, Jesus wins. And we get to be a part of that. However, this truth doesn't mean that the enemy doesn't win some battles along the way. Now think about World War II. Who won World War II, the Axis or the Allies? Well, the Allies did. Does that mean the Allies won every battle that they fought and they never lost a man in combat? No. Now that victory came at a steep price. Many battles were lost. Many lives were lost. The path to ultimate victory, it always has lost battles and lost lives. It just does. So the ultimate victory is sure. But along the way, there will be losses. That's sad. And it's hard. But it's true. And we have to be ready to deal with that. So are you trying to save the lost? Restore a backslider? Heal a broken heart? Restore a ruptured relationship? Do something else for Jesus? And you are putting yourself in a position to face opposition that comes in many forms and never gives up. And sadly, occasionally wins. Be ready for it. Determine that you're going to stand against it with discernment and with perseverance even in the face of losses. Let's pray and we'll move on. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace and goodness. Help us, O oh God, to be ready to fight the spiritual battles we're going to face. Help us, Lord, to know the battles are real, and that we're going to struggle, and at times we are going to lose. And Lord, that's not a fun thing to think about, but it is a reality. Help us not to be so discouraged by that that we give up. Lord, we get up after a loss and we move on and we continue to serve you. Have your way in our hearts. Have your way in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.